one woman is taking on gender discrimination in the workplace with a $16 million lawsuit. Ellen Powell says she was denied a promotion because she couldn't break into the boys club of the tech world. In 2014, African Americans made up between 1 and 6% of the workforce in four of the biggest tech companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook. Only 1% of tech entrepreneurs who received venture capital money in the first half of 2010 were black. Welcome to the third and final episode of a special series of the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. You've just heard clips from ABC News in 2015 and CNN Money in 2016, explaining how the tech and innovation world isn't known for welcoming diverse workers and entrepreneurs. From Snapchat to Uber, the rapid success and high valuation of tech startups has driven headlines and raised eyebrows. But from Silicon Valley to other communities around the country, women and minorities remain underrepresented in these lucrative fields. We take for granted these terms like Series A or Bridge or Capital or Convertible Note or you know Equity and these terms that, that for us is sort of second nature in, in the business, but in these communities, it's not really there. That was H. Puentes, the director of Connect All, an initiative in San Diego designed to help address this problem. Connect All is part of the region's decades-old Connect Innovation Organization. Last year, Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program worked with economic development leaders in San Diego and two other regions, Nashville and Indianapolis, to explore how cities and metropolitan areas can better harness the productive potential of all their residents and address growing disparities that threaten both individual livelihoods and regional prosperity. In this three-part series, we've been taking you inside these metro areas work with Brookings in the Inclusive Economic Development Lab, their challenges and opportunities, what they learned, and the potential solutions and collaborations they are exploring. I'm joined in these episodes by Rachel Barker, a policy analyst and engagement strategist with the Metropolitan Policy Program, who conducted the interviews in this series. In episode one, we learned about Indianapolis, Nashville, and San Diego as the residents face the challenges and opportunities of technological and demographic change. In episode two, we explored what economic development leaders from San Diego, Nashville, and Indianapolis learned in the Inclusive Economic Development Lab about who is struggling to connect to economic success and why. But how can business leaders in cities and metro areas help address these barriers? What new partnerships and collaborations will it require? And what are the teams from Indianapolis, Nashville, and San Diego considering? In this third and final episode, We're delving deeper into those questions. In addition to Rachel, we're joined by Brookings fellow Joseph Perilla, author of Opportunity for Growth, How Reducing Barriers to Economic Inclusion Can Benefit Workers, Firms, and Communities, as well as Brookings non-resident senior fellow Brad McDermott and Ryan Donahue, a project analyst who, with Rachel, authored Committing to Inclusive Growth, Lessons from the Inclusive Economic Development Lab. You'll also continue to hear from local leaders and experts from the three regions. Here's Rachel speaking with H. Puentes from Connect All in San Diego. I want to talk a little about why Connect, which is this decades-old organization in San Diego, which has this really rich history helping build out the innovation ecosystem there, decided to really tackle this issue head-on. Could you first talk a little about Connect and its history and then why it was important for the organization now to really engage on this inclusive growth issue? So, as you mentioned, Connect is an accelerator 
chapter that's been around for nearly 33 years. So it was around before incubators and accelerators were in vogue and, and you know, the, the hot topic of the day. Um, so Connect was born out of UC, UC San Diego, which is the big university here. Uh, and so UC San Diego had technology on campus that it really wanted to commercialize, but it didn't have the mechanism to do so. And so some of the faculty and some of the community leaders came together and created what was called then UCSD Connect. And, and it was born with the mission to help bring the resources, support, mentoring, programming that was needed to help commercialize the technology from on campus and really bring it out. But around 15 years ago, we spun out into our own nonprofit, just called Connect. And our company since 2005 have, have raised about uh, $1.9 billion in capital and created well over 6,000 jobs for San Diego. And so we really are the, the innovation sort of elders in the community. Now, uh, going to your point of why did Connect sort of decide to look at diversity and inclusion? Well, you know, I guess for me personally, I spent some time advising some companies and working for a, a really cool startup in the Bay. Uh, and it was glaring to me as I went around to events and met people in the tech world that there weren't too many people that looked like me. I kind of always stood out wherever I went. And that was never really a problem. I grew up in the outskirts of Houston, Texas. I sort of was used to that type of environment, but it was always a little unsettling. And so when I joined Connect in San Diego, I found myself in the same situation. Um, I would go around to events and see the same gender and color of skin. And so early on at Connect, we said about, so early on, um, January of last year, um, right after I started, we set about creating an initiative to do our small part to change that. And although we just had a small part, the more and more we did our research, and the more and more we realized that we had a critical role to play because day in and day out for the last 33 years, we've been at the embryonic stage of business creation. And you can't really touch an innovation company in San Diego and find one that doesn't have some sort of connection to connect. So our thought was that if we could encourage diversity at the early stages of business creation, then these companies, when they grow, they will obviously have a different corporate culture and will we'll have different hiring practice embedded in the company's DNA at inception. And this is a much easier fix uh, to the problem than Uber, Facebook, and Google are having now that there are you know, tens of thousands of employees in with a culture that has taken some very deep roots. And to their credit, I think these large tech companies are really trying. They're putting a lot of money and a lot of resources to the issue. But I think the reality is, and we saw from the, the numbers that just came out, that the actual diversity is in decline in the last year, that it's just a very difficult to move this needle when you're that far gone. In launching Connect All, Puentes and his colleagues pursued what they call a human-centered design approach. They met with community leaders, elected officials, and church groups to understand the needs and barriers in the context of initiatives and programs that already existed in San Diego. And what emerged from that process was a focus on working with African-American and Latino communities, including in areas like southeastern San Diego and local parlance south of the eight interstate that cuts across the region that are really disconnected from the innovation on the Torrey Pines Mesa. And that includes events like one that Connect All hosted with the Jacob Center for Neighborhood Innovation in the city's Diamond District last year. We went around and we recruited 35 of the most innovative startups in all of San Diego. And we had been doing an event called Connect with Connect, which was just a general networking event. 
Uh, we'd been doing that for over a decade. Um, but where we have done that is basically up in La Jolla, uh, UTC area, which is a very affluent part of San Diego, right by the beach, uh, the great universities, great houses, great lifestyle. And we'd been doing it there. And so as a leadership team, we committed ourselves to do it for the first time in Southeast San Diego uh, in partnership with the Jacob Center, which is one of the most underserved communities of all of San Diego. And we asked these 35 companies to come to Connect with Connect and showcase your best technology. And then we worked with the Jacob Center and other community organizations. We went out and did a big push to the churches, the local leaders, and said, hey, we're going to bring these innovation uh, companies. We had virtual reality headsets. We had drones flying. Biotech was there. There was an esophagus that had stem cells that you can put in. We had um, a 3D printed rockets components. We had um, anti-drone technology um, that was used by uh, DOD. And we brought all that. And then we encouraged the community to come out. And it was just an incredible experience because here you had, um, for the first time in, in that community's history, you had real great innovation in their backyard. And so they all came out and it was a really incredible event. And sort of the thought that underpins that is it's one thing that you do a tech crunch disrupt or, you know, in the four seasons in San, in San Francisco or in London. It's another thing if, if we could have similarly successful innovation uh, events in communities that we're trying to attract. These kinds of education and awareness building events are one of what Puentes calls three cogs of the wheel of the initiative's approach. Puentes and his colleagues also recruit existing diverse innovators. They connect those individuals with programming and mentoring, and eventually they hope to send successful innovators back into their communities to be role models and inspire even more residents. Last year, the City of San Diego, the Jacob Center for Neighborhood Innovation, and Connect All also announced plans to locate an accelerator at the Jacob Center. Connect is also a longtime partner of the San Diego Regional Economic Development Corporation, our partner in the Inclusive Economic Development Lab. Leaders at the regional EDC are exploring how to collaborate with Connect on these inclusive innovation issues. San Diego isn't the only region facing the imperative to expand access to tech and innovation fields. Here's Joseph Barilla speaking with Rachel. Why is it especially important that we make it easier for diverse populations to participate in the tech and innovation economy? So I think there's a couple of reasons why the interplay between the rapid technological advancement and digitalization of our firms and industries and jobs is one phenomena while America continues to diversify. So the workforce that we need to prepare to keep up with those technology trends is changing. And due to kind of our legacy around race and class, we've selectively educated the non-white parts of our population. And that is simply unsustainable as demographic shifts push us to you know, a majority non-white country in the next couple decades. Recent Brookings research found that over two-thirds of occupations in the U.S. today require higher or medium digital skills. But blacks and Hispanics are underrepresented in many of these occupations, particularly ones that are highly digital and high-paying. Preparing that diverse workforce to participate in the innovation economy matters for a couple reasons. One you know, we don't necessarily know where the next, you know, breakthrough will occur. And so one dynamic here is what economists are now labeling this lost Einstein's theory, the idea that talent is distributed pretty evenly, but 
opportunity is not, social networks are not. And so if we don't give kids an equal shot to kind of meet their productive potential, we're maybe leaving some of these transformative innovators on the sidelines. So it's essentially not playing with like the full team within the innovation economy, which is, you know, a challenge because if you care about innovation or productivity, like you want all the capabilities the country can possibly muster put towards those goals because we know they're really important for prosperity, for quality of life, for a whole bunch of reasons. And the reality is that there's very real barriers within that economy. So beyond intelligence and skill, things like socioeconomic status and social exposure really increase the chances of a kid, say, you know, becoming an inventor later in life. What are the other ways that metro areas and their economic development organizations can generate inclusive growth? And what's underway or under consideration in Indianapolis, Nashville, and San Diego? Here are Brad McDermott and Ryan Donahue speaking with Rachel. These three regions finished the six-month process last year. Where are they now? So I'd say once again, we knew going in that this would be a very complex undertaking. So instead of focusing on the whole process on strategies, the real objective of the project was to give each group and region the time and space to focus on creation of a compelling regional narrative or the business case for more inclusive growth. So we realized these local groups needed to fully understand the issue and its local impacts before they could potentially champion the cause themselves or gain new champions. And we believe that if they could develop this business case, then good strategy would naturally follow. So the lab really offered a safe way to wade into this subject, better understand, while giving agencies the time to determine the best potential role and ensure balance in their work. So in that respect, I'd say we're really encouraged by the progress in each of the three, and for a number of reasons. And I think first, they all clearly understand the issue now and their local economies in ways that they didn't before this project. And it's top of mind for them now. And second, I think the process resulting in a change within these organizations themselves. I think they felt initially they're building the narrative to take out, which is important, but they're starting to think differently and they're starting the processes of acting differently, which is important. And third, they've developed these compelling narratives that they're now taking out into their markets and So to those early questions we talked about that they were being asked, they're now armed with the story. They know what's going on, and they're working to change the dialogue in their regions. And the response has really been quite positive. One of the local leads that I talked to recently presented to a group of regional mayors last month, and he shared that the mayors basically knew this in their guts. They kind of knew this was going on, but they'd never seen it laid out and defended and so clearly before. So their response was, we get it, we're in, and now where do we start? So they're all in a position of being ready to jump into more specific strategies. And in this regard, you're starting to get people thinking about these regional economic development organizations as thought leaders and awareness builders and conveners that are uniquely positioned to drive a regional agenda on inclusive growth. And, And people are listening and buying in and want to engage. So... That, I think, was important. And I also think for all of us, I guess I just want to add that there was a rising awareness for all of us, including the regions in the midst of this lab process, that inclusive growth is not something 
separate from economic development. It, it is economic development. And it's not only a moral imperative, it's ultimately about the competitiveness of the region and its firms. So it's a business imperative. And that statement's coming from someone like me who used to work for a major site selection consulting firm and focused solely on the business attraction side for many years. So I think in terms of where they are, and even where we are, there's more of us starting to get it and are positioned to move forward. And I think they've already got some good strategies that they're starting to hone in on. And what do you think are some of the roles that these organizations could play in building inclusive growth? Well, a basic framework that emerged from this project is that economic development organizations basically have three broad ways in which they can intervene. And those are practice, policy, and partnerships. So practice basically involves turning existing economic development tools towards kind of these new problems. So, for example, EDOs spend a lot of time helping companies grow through programs that help them adopt new technology or programs that help them export. And given that no region has time to help every company that might benefit from those programs, they could begin targeting those programs more specifically towards companies that are in industries that we know provide good middle-wage jobs with upward mobility. Or another example would be there's tons of data on the bias and discrimination that minority entrepreneurs face, and so uh, an organization might focus more on connecting entrepreneurs from those populations to mainstream sources of finance or connect them to large anchor firms that might be customers or mentors. So those are some practice examples. On policy, those organizations that have policy arms, and not all of them do, could use this business case for inclusive growth to begin advocating for things like high-quality pre-K, as they are in Indianapolis, or expanded community college programs, or housing and transit improvements, which were major policy issues in every market. And then lastly, partnership is perhaps the most difficult of these to define, but at least as important as the others. And that basically involves any building awareness of the need for more inclusive growth in terms that relate to both the business and community development worlds. And then B, acting as sort of neutral conveners in the region that can help organizations from different jurisdictions and with different focus areas come together and better align and coordinate their work on these big systemic problems. We were talking about developing a vision and saying, okay, because one of the things that happens when you show people data, people focus on the problem. Janice Brown is the vice chair of the San Diego Regional Economic Development Council, which is a former donor to Brookings. So you show them the data. 17% of Latinos have college educations, and so you're going to have to move that delta up. So when you show people that kind of data, the very first thing that comes out of smart minds is why that's the case. And people begin to talk about the problems. What we're going to have to do is to shift into more hopeful thinking about what it would look like if we were successful. So let's say we took the data that you guys helped us gather 
and what would be the vision that we'd create for San Diego if we could say we're moving toward the right agenda? I mean, maybe there'll never be a place where we have utopia, but let's say, what would that vision look like? And then once we get clarity about the vision, then we can say, okay, how do we address it? How do we pick some things to the exclusion of other things? Like, what's the most important component? Is it education? Is it affordability? Is it both of those things? How do we deal with it? But instead of, you know, starting to tackle the problem, my sort of suggestion, and others have said this as well, is let's think about how it would look if we won. That process will also likely include additional voices. And then the other piece of this is, because EDC needs to be more diversified, we need to not just look within our own group and just smell our own air. We got to go out and talk to other groups and say, okay, here's the data. What is your vision of what it would look like? And go to another group. Here's the data, what it would look like to you. We've got to go out and talk to all these different constituencies that make up San Diego and have each of them tell us their vision. And then from that, form a collective vision. Because otherwise, what we'll get if we don't go outside of our comfort zone and talk to other people, we'll get a vision that will be only limited by the people around the table. We've got to expand those who are going to be contributing to the conversation. In February, the San Diego Regional EDC will hold a workshop with local leaders to help craft this vision. I will now call to order the City Planning Council meeting for Monday, February 27, 2017. We'll begin our meeting with a prayer and pledge of allegiance. That was the start of an Indianapolis City-County Council meeting on February 27, 2017. A very consequential meeting, as you will hear from Michael Huber, CEO of the Indy Chamber. Here he is speaking with Rachel. Why was February 27th, 2017 important for Indianapolis? February 27th was the day that our Indianapolis City County Council approved a tax increase that was spurred by a ballot initiative the previous November. The next item on our agenda is proposal number three, refer to Rules and Public Policy Committee, Councilor Johnson. Thank you, Madam President. Proposal number three, 2017, imposes an additional local income tax rate for public transportation project as authorized by the voters' approval of a local public question on November 8, 2016. To nearly double the scope and service of our mass transit system in Indianapolis, and that is the, the Indianapolis-Marion County is the center county of this nine-county region. And while we still have work to do to extend mass transit and increase its coverage in suburban counties, that was a huge step for our region. And what will this expansion accomplish? The expansion and the introduction of bus rapid transit, they stretch across neighborhoods and areas of the city that cover all different ranges of income levels. It was designed in such a way to connect residents in their neighborhoods with population centers, with universities and hospitals, with cultural amenities. And specifically, the introduction of BRT, bus rapid transit, is something that Indianapolis has never seen before. And these three lines are red line, purple line, and blue line that will run 20 hours a day every 10 minutes. 
are going to create significant opportunities in terms of just getting people to work, getting people access to education and healthcare. One of our biggest weakness, it's a competitive weakness, but there's also a moral imperative attached to it, is we do not provide people with enough options to get to work and access jobs. And expanding that, we also don't provide people with enough options to access health care and things that they need. And when you take into account today the full cost of car ownership, especially the full cost of car ownership for a man or a woman who's an hourly worker, who is a parent, who may be trying to upgrade his or her skills at a university or at our Ivy Tech community college, we need to provide more options to allow the individual to better his or her situation. And where the business community really comes in is our mass transit initiative really represented the nexus between the business community saying, we are having trouble finding talented workers. And one of our biggest obstacles is just getting them to work. And the nexus of that need and also this greater community need to provide greater access to jobs and healthcare and education. And we believe, while it's a limited move, I mean, ultimately it gets us from the bottom of the list to the middle of the pack in terms of coverage. It creates significant momentum that we can build off of, especially when you consider that the business community and the private sector got fully behind the initiative in funding it, in supporting the tax increase, and we're excited to see what will come next. Right. And this was an initiative that brought together the Indy Chamber along with religious groups, environmental groups, the Urban League, the AARP, which isn't a group you often hear working together. Why did all these groups align behind this and how did they all work together towards this goal? It was several years of collaboration to make it happen, and certainly it would not have happened without this wide range of organizations if it had been seen as just a chamber-slash-business community initiative. I don't believe it would have passed. And, of course, every one of our collaborators is going to have their own slice, is going to have their own unique motivation for supporting, in this case, mass transit expansion. But it was so important to align along common interests because together with that group of collaborators, we knew we could reach a majority of the population in our city. And what's exciting about that coalition coming together is immediately we started thinking about how can we replicate this in other ways to improve our city and our region? How could we bring this group back together to help us improve opportunities for better jobs? How can we bring this group back together to improve public health? And so that coalition that you mentioned is so important, and I'm optimistic that we can really build off that because those organizations working together on several years on this transit initiative, that's something we can replicate on another community need or opportunity. Right. And that kind of calls to mind this term that we heard from Indianapolis during the project, which is an EDO as a collaborator general. What does that mean? And how do you think EDOs can kind of work with these other groups like community development and workforce development that have often been siloed historically in cities? I think the short answer is the EDO can bring the enlightened self-interest of the private sector to the table. And this is a delicate thing, but it represents a way that EDOs in complex cities need to change, and that is evolving from largely a marketing and transactional function to a group that can be, as you said, collaborator-in-chief to get big things done. And what I'm talking about is rather than just being a business recruitment machine, being a leader and a collaborator on those issues that fundamentally improve your city and create that organic growth, improving education workforce systems, improving the infrastructure 
bridging gaps that exist in the community, whether they be equity, things like this. This, of course, becomes very, very complex. These are not, and the reason collaborator-in-chief is important, these are things that an EDO funded predominantly by the private sector with some public or philanthropic funding, these are things EDO cannot accomplish on their own. Sometimes when I talk to my peers about around the country about this, and I have some peers who are really, really good, whom I admire, but I also hear peers basically say, well, my competitors, and if they name off competitors that represent other civic organizations in their market, I kind of stop listening, honestly, because that point of view is not what is going to enable your city to attack these really, really complex problems, education and workforce being one. There's no silver bullet that we've seen so far to move the needle on education outcomes and access to jobs. It's a combination of many things and therefore requires a combination of many players across multiple sectors. Reaching out to partners in different sectors and neighborhoods was part of the Inclusive Economic Development Lab. James Taylor is the CEO of the Bonner Center, which is on the near east side of Indianapolis. What role do you think groups like the Indy Chamber and regional economic development more broadly can play in helping neighborhoods and communities like where you are? Well, I think first and foremost, they are an essential role and an essential piece of the puzzle when it comes to economic development and job creation issues for our particular neighborhood. I mean, if you look at the central Indiana regional economy, you kind of have a mismatch. You have people without jobs, and then you have jobs without people happening in the broad region. And being able to help figure out the ability to connect people to where there are jobs or to place jobs where there are people in need of jobs is one way that the Chamber and the Brookings Project Institute has kind of been examining. So that really boils down to a couple of different things. That might be a transportation issue in terms of bus rapid transit and how do we connect people through public means to be able to access jobs. It comes down to workforce development issues. How do we ensure that there is accessible, affordable training for those low-skilled workers to be able to have the skills to take advantage of those jobs? And then thirdly, it's identifying opportunities for businesses who, you know, are looking for locations to be able to house their operations and identifying and helping to play essentially matchmaker between the work that's happening on the ground here within our Near East Side community and those broader business opportunities that exist for the region and determining where those fits are. So in past years, when it came to job creation, both in the state of Indiana and even in central Indiana, Oftentimes, it was looked at as the low-hanging fruit. You have an employer that says, I want to build a new facility. I'm going to employ a 1,000 people. The easiest thing is to find you know, a vacant cornfield, perhaps, or something out in the suburbs where you don't necessarily have the complexities that you might have in an urban environment and be able to put together a deal, and they would be housed there without really thinking about kind of the broader social justice and economic issues and kind of sustainability issues with that. More currently, the thinking around equitable workforce development is really thinking at a more organic level in terms of how do we match up where people live and where opportunities exist and where perhaps marginalized communities will have both the support and the accessibility to new jobs and new sectors that are coming about within our economy. 
Measures like Indy's transit expansion can deliver real benefits to residents in the area. We went back and looked at our data over a two-year period of time, and our community center helped place over 300 individuals into jobs. And we went through and we looked at the industries they were placed in, but more importantly, we looked at the location of their job sites. And 98% of those were outside our neighborhood. And for those individuals, the cost in terms of time and transportation to be able to get from our neighborhood to those positions is a high cost, a sunk cost for individuals to be able to do that. So as we think about those things, we got to be able to think about how we better connect those. But we also think about how do we retain jobs within our communities where people are living and where there's all this rich other kinds of community development activity happening. How do we kind of rebuild the job base within our community? You may also remember the former RCA plant on the near east side from the first episode in this series. Redeveloping that property and locating jobs there is a significant priority for the neighborhood. Over the last couple of years, the city of Indianapolis has essentially been able to reassemble all the property that are part of Sherman Park as a way of kind of cleaning and creating a platform for community residents to re-envision what's kind of the next chapter, the next life for this particular asset in our neighborhood. There are very few 50-acre plots of land that exist within the urban core of Indianapolis. So we think this is kind of a unique asset that we have as a community. And through Near East Area Renewal, who just earlier this year received a grant from the Environmental Protection Agency, community members are beginning to formulate plans in terms of potential uses for this site. And they're kind of testing those plans against what exists in the marketplace to make sure it's viable. So You know, aspirations are only as good as there's economic viability behind those ideas. And we hoped by the first quarter of next year, we will have kind of finalized what we would like to see happen with that particular industrial park within our community. At the end of the day, though, we want it to be about job creation, not perhaps in its entirety, and certainly not 6,500 jobs like it used to produce for our neighborhood. But with new industries and new marketplaces, you know, kind of emerging out of our economy, how can we marry up some of those opportunities with kind of this blank slate that exists within our neighborhood? Convening in collaboration is also core to how the Nashville Chamber thinks about its role in the region. Ralph Schultz is president and CEO at the Nashville Chamber. First of all, Nashville has a proclivity toward collaboration. And one of the great features, I think, of Nashville is that organizations don't try to overstep their bounds. They have an understanding of their role in creating a solution and generally realize that they aren't the entire solution in and of themselves. So usually what begins the process is we will create some data create some research, and we will start to call together the people in the community that we know 
are interested. So, for instance, with regards to the Hispanic population, Conexion Americas would always be one of the people invited to the discussion. You might involve the 100 black men or the black chamber, or you might involve city agencies that are involved, but generally it is the research that causes people to show up to that first meeting. At the end of that first meeting, what generally happens is some next step is plotted and everyone takes some homework away from that so that everyone's expertise is now engaged in the issue. And then that leads to other organizations. It can be church groups. It can be civic organizations. It can be minority organizations. It can be labor organizations. I mean, right now we're involved in a coalition of the ACLU, the Chamber, and Goodwill and a conservative think tank in Nashville called the Beacon Center to affect justice reform that has as one of its intents to release people who have been inhibited by their criminal record from returning to be productive members of society. You know, a specific example of that is that for a while, it seems that the legislature always attached the suspension of a driver's license to virtually any and every offense that they, you know, they wanted to punish someone for. And so a lot of capable people that want to be productive members of society literally can't drive to work. So these coalitions form around these issues to change these policies to allow those people to restore their place in the community as a productive member of the community. Last year, Nashville Mayor Megan Berry announced an ambitious plan to expand transit. The Nashville Chamber is supporting the measure, which goes up for a vote this spring. When it comes to access, as a for instance, you know, this helped crystallize the important need for a transit system to be established in Nashville. So we've taken a lead on advocating for a $5.4 billion referendum to establish a transit system with a high concentration of that transit being placed in parts of the city where access is limited. And that's not all the chamber is advocating for. From an education standpoint, we've been on the front lines and continue to be on the front lines of creating funded education opportunities for both adults and graduating high school students to get further skills development in post-secondary institutions without having to pay tuition. I think the big challenge that still exists there is how do we free free the adults from the work obligations that are consuming their time so that they can get time to improve those skills. Housing affordability is also part of the Chamber's agenda. A city report claimed that Nashville could face a shortage of 30,000 affordable rental units by 2025. This is an issue that the mayor of Nashville, Megan Barry, has made a priority of her administration. What is the Chamber's sort of role and position on that issue? Well, our position on it is that it's a supply issue and that government funding and government policy by itself cannot solve an issue of that magnitude. And so we encourage the development of public policy 
that encourages private investment as a basis for expanding that supply. And so that kind of results in developer partnerships with organizations like the Metro Housing Authority and others in taking the greatest asset that the city has to bring to the table in this housing shortage, which is land, and develop it in such a way that it's meeting those affordable housing needs going forward. So from a policy perspective, we're doing things, we're encouraging policy that encourages supply growth. And from a policy perspective or a programmatic perspective, we are supporting organizations like MDHA that are creating these multi-income, multi-use neighborhoods that we know will stimulate a greater growth in the inhabitants of those neighborhoods. Courtney Ross is the Chief Economic Development Officer at the Nashville Chamber. We did identify kind of three areas through the lab process of the ways that the Chamber typically interacts and ways that that we could be involved, and that is through our work in policy, through continuing to build awareness, whether it's legislation that needs to be passed or that may be prohibitive to inclusivity. That's one area that we can serve a role in in our advocacy efforts. In the same way, inclusive policies that, again, are not in place but that could be, that could be something that we address. It's also about building awareness and convening, as we've mentioned. And then also in the economic development realm, you know, what are ways that economic development opportunities can possibly reach other areas of the city that are mutually beneficial to both the company and those particular neighborhoods where that's a good fit or where there's a, there's a building that is a good fit for that company and it fits the workforce needs of that community as well. So kind of convening, advocacy, and job creation. So where does this leave these organizations and their regions? Here's Rachel with Brookings fellow Joseph Perola. Inclusive growth is an ambitious goal. What will it take for these organizations to succeed? So economic development organizations, I think, are in the midst of an evolution in terms of the function that they're providing in their communities. And success is going to look different depending on the community. But I think there are some overarching things we can take away from the lab. The first is that these organizations really have a fundamental role in documenting what's happening in their communities. So from the just perspective of putting you know, facts out there, research, understanding trends. It's really important. There's really no other organization that does that in local communities, and that was an important role that we saw. But moving from you know, understanding your position to actually trying to change it is obviously much harder. And success in terms of implementation, we can also you know, take away some early wins from some of these communities, whether it's the transit effort in Indianapolis, or efforts in San Diego to extend, you know, the entrepreneurialism in that region to lower-income communities. But it's going to require these organizations, I think, on the one hand, to galvanize their private sector, so who they represent, bring employers to the table around issues related to workforce development, housing, transportation, these building blocks of inclusive growth, how can the private sector contribute to those efforts? These organizations can help galvanize that. 
but they also have to be really good partners to the other systems within their localities. So, you know, they figure out how to better partner with the workforce development and education system or community development organizations that are thinking about a particular community's needs within the context of the broader region. So we started to see some of those partnerships begin, but we're really just at the beginning. And I think some of these cities are at the vanguard of thinking through how you align those systems in a more sustained and impactful way. And what else is needed to address this problem? Yeah, so this is the fundamental problem of our time. So no no one set of actors is going to solve it alone, right? So cities have their own networks and resources. They can bring together, you know, the public and private and civic sectors to rally around some of these local determinants of opportunity and mobility, right? So a lot of this is local, but some of it isn't. And they need state and federal governments that are more in tune with the realities and challenges of our modern economy. I mean, I think that's to maybe put it nicely, right? We need a more intentional state and federal government apparatus in terms of investing in the drivers of growth and inclusion going forward. And right now, you know, certainly at the federal level, that partner is not there. And in many states, it's not there as well. So a part of this is local leaders advocating up to those levels of government to explain what's necessary to deliver the kinds of outcomes that we want to see in all of our communities. What is the opportunity in building more inclusive growth? So there's probably two parts to that. One is, I think, as the paper tried to argue that, you know, our economy benefits when we are including more people, helping them achieve their productive potential. That's just a reality of how the modern economy is going to operate going forward. It's going to rely on kind of smart, innovative people that are coming through with new ideas, becoming more productive. That is how cities and states and the nation as a whole will kind of continue to grow and see living standards rise. But beyond the economic argument, I mean, this is just a a question for the country in terms of you know, delivering opportunity for a broad base of our citizenry. And I think what we're finding is that when people do not feel, maybe do not have the confidence that their living standards are going to rise, there's all sorts of knock-on effects related to our politics, related to social cohesion, and yes, related to the economy as well, eventually, that undermine the sustainability of the American project, really, right? If we don't address some of these barriers, we've seen kind of the preliminary consequences of that. And so that work is oftentimes going to start local. And so the idea behind this project was, you know, establishing the coalitions that can really lead that work and seeing the types of new partnerships and investments necessary to drive those changes. Once again, here's Janice Brown, the vice chair of the San Diego Regional Economic Development Corporation. What I hope that we do is to think about to do this in a way where people are inspired by it, where people are feeling powerful as a result of it, of people wanting to be a role model in the country for doing it, as opposed to, well, look at what we have to do if we're going to be successful for our bottom line of our businesses. 
that it takes on somewhat of a pride in that we saw where the future was going to go and we embraced it. We didn't do it begrudgingly. So that's the part of the vision that I really want to talk about is how people feel about doing this. Because if we can get people excited about it, if we can get people feeling it's a good thing to do, not just an economically beneficial thing, that's what's going to drive it to be better. That's what's going to make it so that people feel it when they have the conversations in the street, because that's where we have to go. I want to extend a big thanks to Rachel Barker and Julia Krager in the Metropolitan Policy Program for their dedication and ideas that have made this special series happen. And to Rachel especially for interviewing all the people from whom you've heard, for writing the scripts, and for being the lead producer for these episodes. As well, my thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holster, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Our intern is Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, Include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts, and listen to it in all the usual places. If you do visit Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dudes.